Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for August 6, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always. Welcome, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, excited about the show tonight. Um, Join us for... Multi, you know, we're getting upwards of four or five times now. Dr. Rachel Bittacoffer is going to join us and talk about a lot of issues from across the country, and even one in her um, adopted home state of Oregon. Um, but we'll have her on the show in about 20 minutes. But until then, we've got just a bunch of different topics, and, and a few of those actually are going to go back to kind of our roots and talk about some southern politics because there's been some interesting news and notes and races that have come out this week. And I want to start two states over in Mississippi. Um, This past week, uh, um, Ben Jacob, a writer for Vox Media, he wrote an extensive article about the governor's race of Mississippi, really laid out the situation of what Mississippi's like, what that campaign looks like with Tate Reeves and a lot of ethical scandals, Brandon Presley and how he campaigns, and could a Democrat really win Mississippi? Now, would I bet much money on that? No, but would I bet a whole bunch of money against it? Probably not either. And I will say one more thing before I turn to Catherine and Tim on some some thoughts and some questions about this. I remember when John Bell Edwards was campaigning for governor, didn't like he'd win, I remember when Andy Bashir was campaigning for governor, didn't look like he'd win. And I remember when, um, you know, just next door in Alabama, um, it looked like Roy Moore was going to win the Senate seat over there, not, um, you know, the Democratic candidate. And in each case, the Democratic candidate had to be a pl- – Doug Jones, uh, Andy Bashir, John Bell Edwards had to be a plausible uh, alternative, and probably more importantly – the Republican had to be really damaged, flawed goods. And if you look at this campaign, those two elements stay the same. Now, will it have the same result? I just don't know. Catherine, from what you've heard and read about Brandon Presley and this campaign, where do you think that's, that race in um, Mississippi stands? You know, I, I'm, uh, I'm with you. I, I follow Mississippi politics, and it's usually so depressing for anyone with any kind of progressive or democratic outlook that it's almost like I can't read about it. But in this case, it seems like he's getting some traction. And like you said, um, Reeves is, uh, well, I, you know, I call him tater, um, is flawed. So, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about it. Yeah. Tim, where do you think this race stands at the moment? 
Well, he's Elvis's second cousin, cousin of Presley. Is that helps? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the, the 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 governor has been hit with some scandals, especially that welfare thing that started when he was lieutenant governor. That was just a massive thing. He's right in the middle of it. So Presley's running on corruption. That 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 helps. Uh, Presley has no. Democratic opposition in the primary, so that certainly helps. Um, he's a member of the Public Service Commission there. I think he's got the Northern District. Uh, so he's well-known in part of the state anyway. And uh, he's also a supporter of Medicaid expansion, which is pretty popular, and, you know, Reeves is opposed to it. But... No Democrats won the governor's race there since the 1990s. Reeves is an incumbent, unlike some of those other people that you mentioned that lost in upsets in other states. Um, Last year, guys, I don't know if you know this, but 31 incumbent governors sought re-election and only one of them lost. The power of the incumbency in the governor's chair means a lot. so Reeves won four years ago, like, by five points against uh, Jim Hood, who was well-known. You know, we got a race. I, I I don't know if he can pull it out, but you you know what it depends on. That 30, 38% of the residents of that state are black. They've got to vote. And that's, that's that, that'll determine whether Presley wins or loses. Yeah, and now, Tim, you are right that David Vitter was the incumbent U.S. senator, not the incumbent governor. Um, uh, Roy Moore, I'm not sure if he was an incumbent sitting on the state Supreme Court at that time, but he was not the incumbent senator. I'm sorry, incumbent governor. But Matt Bevin was in Kentucky. Now, Matt Bevin, he actually was much more of a flamethrower, I think, than Tate Reeves. is not the Tate Reeves scandal with this welfare money, probably is much more self-inflicted even than anything that Bevan did. Now, um, Catherine, one thing Tim didn't mention was another issue that um, Brandon Presley has campaigned on is that of taking the sales tax off of food. Now, we know here in Georgia when Zell Miller proposed that it was popular, it probably helped him a lot in a tough re-election race in 94 to win re-election because he had done that. But much, much more recently – um, in Virginia, where Democrats had won the governorship for two straight times, uh, Glenn, J- Glenn, I almost said his name, Glenn Youngkin was able to win, and that was an issue he campaigned on as a Republican, repealing the sales tax on groceries. It's one of those sales tax issues which I think often more Democrats uh, are in favor of or propose, but it does – it's kind of popular across the aisle. Um, how big a factor do you think that proposal might be? Uh, I think that might be a big factor. Um, I, I was shocked when I moved to Georgia in 1995, and they were still taxing groceries. I, they took the sales tax off groceries in Michigan ages ago. Um, well, it so was I coming think, off at that point because Zell Miller, he, he proposed it in 90, and it was voted. I mean, it was uh, passed through the legislature by 94. But, you know, sometimes those things phase out. But it was that he had actually gotten that work done in the early 90s. Um, but I, I think that could be a, a, 
it's certainly a good thing to run on. It's a positive um, issue. It, I mean, almost, I mean, you'd have to be pretty um, dense to be against it, right? I mean, even wealthy people would rather not pay taxes on their food. So uh, I think that could be a helpful uh, – that and, and Medicaid expansion, I think, could be really helpful, for, for, especially for getting the vote out. Yeah. Um, now, Tim, um, Brandon Presley, you know, he's won election in that northern part of the state. Now, let's talk about some geography here because Ben Jacobs did such a good job talking about that. You've got the largest city, Jackson – and then some of the surrounding counties, some more Republican like Rankin, some like um, I believe it's Madison County, the most highly educated county in the state. And it actually had Joe Biden got the best performance of any Democrat for president since Walter Mondale in 94. Then you've got uh, the college towns, which I think are actually kind of small in the state in Oxford and Hattiesburg. So therefore, they may be trending Democratic, but it didn't help too much. And then you finally you've got that southern part of the state, which turned Republican far earlier than a lot of the places in the south. I sent y'all a piece of information. Forest County, where Hattiesburg is, the last time a Democrat won that county was 1944 with FDR. I'm sitting here thinking, you know, there's a decent chance that that county stays Republican for 100 straight years. We're not big into predictions for 2044, but – the way things are going, it doesn't look too hot. So that's kind of the geographic breakdown. What's your take on where um, Brandon Presley has to win this race or Tate Reeves has to play defense and hold on to this race? Well, first of all, Reeves needs a big turnout south of Jackson down around, you know, Hattiesburg, uh, towns like Laurel, which vote like, in some elections, 90-10 Republican, uh, all the way down to the the coast. He he needs all of that to turn out heavily for him. And and as I mentioned already, uh, the the black vote has really got to come out uh, heavily in the governor's race this year. That that vote has been down just a little bit. Because uh, black voters have perceived that Democrats haven't really uh, spent enough time and money on down ballot races that that would you know help some black candidates get elected. One thing that's happened this year is that Benny Thompson endorsed Presley right out of the gate, and I guess Benny Thompson is like the top Democrat in the state. Um, and you know he he didn't endorse Hood four years ago. He didn't even he didn't even endorse the the candidate for governor in, in Mississippi four years ago. But it, but he did it this time, and and that's where he's got to win the race. There's got to be a huge turnout in the Jackson area and north of there and across the Black Belt. He's he's got to have those, those blacks to get out and vote, or I just I don't see where the numbers are there for him to win. Yes. Um, Catherine, I think Tim's right that, you know, the top 
Democrat uh, as far as um, probably name recognition because there are no senators. They don't have a governor. Most of the statewide elected officials, other than Brandon Presley, are Republicans. That's a big factor. Also, Jackson and the plight of Jackson motivating voters. Jackson in the past few months is now the um, homicide capital of America. More, it has the highest uh, homicide rate in recent months. I don't know if that's over the last 12 year, 12 month period or a little bit less, but that's not a good thing. And then also the water situation, which sounded much like Flint, Michigan. Um, and we know Michigan's turned very democratic kind of since that. Do you think some of these voters that have been sitting out saying, eh, politics doesn't matter, now may say the only recourse I have to get clean water and, you know, reduce these number of shootings in the capital city is to vote this incumbent out? I, I hope that people are thinking like that because I think it's true. You know, I mean, we talk about it all the time that people tend to focus on federal elections because they get all the uh, media attention and all the ads and everything. But really, when it comes to your day-to-day, you know, life and circumstances, it's the state and local level um, elected officials that really have an impact on your, you know, on the water and, you know, Medicaid expansion and things like that. So uh, I am hopeful that that message is getting through to voters across the country and that they will start focusing on some of those state level as much as they focus on federal elections. So I hope they recognize that because it's true that if you want clean water, you should, you should probably vote for Democrats. (laughs) Yes. I mean, in this case, no doubt, because I mean, look who's neglected that. Now, I know, of course, there could be some folks who go, oh, well, Democrats run Jackson, and look what's going on. But when the state government neglects the Capitol, look what's going on. So it's where yeah. you, um, you know, used to divide the David, Go ahead, Tim. I, I, there's something that's bothered me for a long time about Mississippi. If you look at state rankings in any category, you know, whether it's education, health care, jobs in the economy, no no matter what it is, infrastructure, anything. If you look at all these different state rankings, and y'all have seen those lists, Mississippi consistently is at or near the literal ass end of everything. So, so I, I've often wondered, and I, and I know I wonder if Democrats have asked this question down there of the voters: What have these Republicans they keep electing year after year after year for decades? What have they done for them? What can they point well, to and say, "Oh, we're doing great"? I, I don't get that. Well, I'll tell you what they would probably would point to. They'd say, well, Mississippi was last when Democrats were in charge. You know, we had the same old statistics. Now, if you're talking about 50 years ago when, um, you know, Ross oh, Tucker and so, Ross so, so they and, wanna, uh, yeah, know. So they want to say Democrats yeah. were terrible, so we're going to be terrible, too. That don't exactly well, it's a sell me on voting for them. Yeah. Well, it's, it's <laughs> 
okay, you know we what? don't want to fix these people's they problems. Saying, so just... They got elected, though, saying they could fix it, and they didn't. No, they said we'll keep let you keep your tax dollars and not try to fix the problems. I had somebody that worked back in Ronnie Show's campaign years ago that said, you know, Mississippi is one of the few states without kindergarten mandated because a lot of people in the state, white voters, said, oh, well, if we pay for that, we're going to have to have all those black kids that pay for their kindergarten. And they chose, and this is in the 1990s, late 90s, early 2000s, they were thinking this way. I don't know what the kindergarten situation is in Mississippi today, but I know when I heard it, you know, this is the kind of thinking you think would be in the the 60s, maybe in the early 70s. But this was going on 25 years later, this same kind of thinking, and I think there's still a whole lot of that. You know, why, that's why there's some people that will ignore that welfare scandal. They'll be like, well, you know, if we had given the people food and, you know, shelter, they would have just wasted the money. Why not build a, a volleyball arena for Brett Favre's daughter's school? You know, they'll think that's just okay. <laughs> and that's just, just yeah, total yeah. nonsense. Well, let's go ahead and, yeah. and move one state north of Mississippi. And by the way, a little segue, one of the counties that's going to be critical is DeSoto County, which is a suburban Memphis county, um, where a lot mm-hmm. of the voters consume Memphis media, consider themselves part of Metro Memphis. We're going to vote in this race, or hopefully they vote in this race, because that county's trending more Democratic. Um, than it has been. But now let's talk about Tennessee. We talked about the three lawmakers. Two got turned out of the state house. One did not. We know there was one definable. Well, there's two definable traits. I will say they had different gender, uh, but they also had different race. And the two African American got turned out. Uh, the one that was a white female was not turned out, but they came after her nonetheless. But all three of them made news this week. Um, the two gentlemen that got turned out, the young representatives, they had to run in special elections, and they won their special elections by more than they won originally. They increased the Democratic performance in this special election. So in the very you know, straightforward part of this, this is a really good outcome for those two gentlemen, showing that people liked their leadership. They wanted them to continue to serve. But on a bigger picture, this follows another trend where Democrats are doing great in special elections. Catherine, um, what was your take on both of these representatives, one from Nashville, one from Memphis, being returned to the state legislature? I think it's great, and I think that it's a great sign for 2024, but also a great sign for Democrats in general and for our voters getting out and voting. Um, And I think – it probably is an indicator of uh, uh, voters not liking uh, their previous decision being overturned by uh, the the legislature. You know that they had elected these two these two men, and to have them removed for you know uh, unreasonable. Uh, behavior I mean for for an unreasonable for a, not a good reason um, I think that you know that makes the voters angry and so they reelected them good for them yes so Justin Jefferson I'm sorry Justin Pearson um, I had I actually looked at the lawmakers and couldn't keep it in my head at the walk away my bad 
Um, the Justin two lawmakers get returned. Go ahead and say it, Catherine. Justin Jones is the other one. Justin, Justin Jones. Jones. And we had the other one. Pearson. Yes, I remember yeah. Pearson. So they get returned to the Tennessee legislature. Um, Tim, how silly does this make the um, – the people that the Republicans that expelled them look because we talked about this, not how this mm-hmm. is a, a very likely outcome, and sure enough, it happened. Yeah, not only silly, but well, dare I say, racist. Because don't forget, there weren't two state representatives involved in uh, all of this. There were three. And they voted to expel the two black state representatives, and then State Representative Gloria Johnson, they did not vote to expel her. Uh, and, and, you know, and she's white. So, I mean, yeah. you know, what's that supposed to look like, right? And um, she made and, news as well, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But right now, I want to segue to our guest. And we'll kind of get out of the South and talk about some other issues with Dr. Rachel Bittacoffer. Welcome, Dr. Bittacoffer. Well, thanks for having me back, guys. Yeah, glad to have you back. Um, well, we, we um, heard that, you know, we're going to talk to you about things across the country and national politics, but we know there's some exciting news up in the Pacific Northwest. I guess it's, it's now known Big 12 country. Um, I'm sorry, Big 10 country. Um, but but yeah. They're going to let you pump your own gas. You were able to pump your gas in Georgia and pump your gas in Virginia, and now you can pump your gas in Oregon. What led to that? <laughs> I mean, this has been a local state, you know, state conversation for a couple, two decades, actually, to be honest with you. Uh, it used to be kind of normal to have these full-service stations, if you guys, some of you may be old enough to remember. Uh, but as they were phased out and, and shifted to, you know, the speedier version of self-serve, some states dug their heels in on the notion of job creation, right? You're losing critical jobs, you know, at least a few thousand across the state when you um, allow people to fill up their own gas, and people will choose that option when it's given to them. <laughs> so it's not a new issue. What is new is that they actually took the, to, the steps to get rid of it. And, you know, there's two things that make Oregon special other than all of the awesome nature and the weather and everything else, the cheese, the beer, the wine. The other thing that makes us awesome is, is no sales tax. So if I had to lose one of the two, I would definitely trade away, you know, gas, gas attendant jobs every day, as long as we don't have any sales tax. Yes. Well, I'm going to get into that jobs picture nationally in a minute, but before that I wanted to also kind of tie this back into the state and the politicians. From my understanding, uh, the governor that won the election in uh, 2022 Tina Kotek, she had kind of a tough race, and she didn't come in with huge popularity numbers. Is this the kind of just straightforward, common-sense legislation that can make her and Democrats in the state more popular for just passing it, particularly in the eastern half of the state where some of the folks want to become part of Idaho? (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, this idea that we have red states and blue states is really – it's wrong, right? I mean, there are obviously states where the political climate – tops one way or the other, but generally in every state you have red and blue areas. And, of course, eastern Oregon has probably more in common <laughs> with Macon, Georgia, than it does with, you know, 
Portland, right? So, uh, <laughs> so it's not a surprise to me at all. But in terms of Coach Heck's popularity, she was in a actually a really unorthodox position where we had a three-way race out here at last time, and she still cleared. I think it was about 52% of the popular vote with that independent in the on the general election ballot. So I'd probably push a little bit back on uh, her popularity, though she'll never pull well, like I said, in those counties out in, in rural Oregon that want to that think they want to belong to uh, Idaho. <laughs> yes. Well, um, let me go ahead and move this. You know, you're talking about the fact that it, it was, it, was it a job saver when they enacted it? Was it a job killer if, with this change? But let's talk about the national economy overall. Right now, this is the best jobs economy possibly in American history. Now, are there other things about the economy that are not as great, like prices on some goods? Absolutely. But when we talk about having a job, it's never really been easier just on the aggregate to get a job in America than right now. And, so and to get case. one that pays you good money, right? And, 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 and Absolutely. That. Yeah, right. So if, if that's the case, why, when polls show, you know, what's your view of the economy, why are Americans so, by and large, negative on the economy? Well, you have to understand is that most Americans are not listening to the erudite, you know, conversations happening on shows like your guys' wonderful show. Uh, it's unfortunate, right, that most people are, don't, don't have political interests like that and don't follow stuff. So you have to, you know, for about 80% of the population, you're really talking about imagistic things. So like the price of the gallon of milk at the store, the gas station, when there's chatter about the economy being bad, you know, they absorb that. But you never, they don't talk a lot on the news about how gas prices are so low, right? <laughs> they don't talk about how, car, you know, a carton of eggs is cheap, right? They only talk about it when it's in a crisis. So that's why it's really behooved. The Biden administration and his campaign is a separate entity to do a good job as best as they can, bringing people information when the economy is good. It doesn't make headlines, and that that can be it's good, right? You don't have the economy headlines working against you, but it also means it's bad because your job is to tell Americans who don't follow news and politics, which is the vast majority of Americans, this news, and then you know a segment of that audience is not receptive. So, like literally. Money could be flying out of the, the clouds into people's hands, and uh, card-carrying Republicans with a Democrat in the White House are not going to tell you the economy is going well. Well, well that's my uh, last question on this, and, and how do both the Biden-Harris campaign and really other Democrats running mainly for re-election, although I guess there's a way to kind of tie yourself to it, even if you're not running for re-election, if you're calling all red, say – it's an incumbent in the House. How do you tie yourself to this good jobs economy and let the people know to where it then boosts all Democrats? Yeah, and you have to you have to you have to be willing to be a brand ambassador for the Democratic economic record, right? And there's a, there's a belief within you know people within the Democratic orbit that unless everything is good. You shouldn't brag about anything being good because it leaves you open to criticism about all these other things that aren't good. Well, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember four wonderful years of the Trump administration, 
But one of the things that he did best was every day he told people the economy is on fire and it's all because of me, <laughs> right? They didn't care about the ups and downs of the market. I mean, before the pandemic rolled in anyway. It was, there was no nuance. He didn't acknowledge that social mobility was at historic lows, that wages had way out, inflation had way out past wages because of the refusal to, you know, pin the minimum wage, the federal minimum wage to inflation. Like, he didn't talk about oh, I did all these things, but I hear you're still hurting, and I know you're still hurting, and this and that. He just said, I'm, I am delivering for you on the economy, and, and that's honestly what it takes from Democrats, too. So, you know, they have to be willing to, to credit claim without fixing everything or diminishing the credit that they're claiming by talking about all the things that they couldn't get to fixing. Yes, well, as we know, I mean, the economy's not often the main issue. It's often the issue in some campaigns. So, that's going to have to be something that really gets discussed in detail. But I know that Catherine and Tim have other questions about all kind of other topics. If there's something I think they forgot, I'll wrap it up at the end. So, Catherine? Hey, Rachel. It's nice to have you on the show again. Hey, girl. Great to hear from you. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you, and this just occurred to me today when I was reading some of these new poll numbers about Pence. Like, he is number three in Michigan now, and DeSantis is slowly, or not so slowly, uh, falling off all the charts because he's such a maniac. Do you think Pence could be the savior of the Republican Party as we used to know it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I, I think someone has, someone other than Chris Christie, somebody with a little bit more relevance, recent relevance, because Chris Christie, believe it or not, was, you know, not well-known when he was in the news a lot and certainly isn't well-known as an afterthought. So I think Pence, Pence's name ID coming on the heels of, of holding the vice presidency, is, it, that's why he's registered in the polls. That's why it's been a three-person polling race from day one, Trump, DeSantis, and Pence, because those are the three people that average – even primary voters are not like us. I mean, they're, they're still much more active and involved than normal American voters, but they're nothing like, like people like us and the people listening to the show where they're following it intensely. So, you know, they generally respond to these polls, especially when there's 10 names in there, like, oh, well, I'm going to latch onto the ones that I know, right? So to me, Pence's, Pence has the, we need somebody to fill that role. And so far, Pence has been an imperfect messenger, but I do think this criminal process could change that. Seems to already be exerting some change on his, his conversation and, and uh, willingness to, to talk frankly about the election lies and the, the events that surrounded January 6th. So it's certainly possible, but I would tell people that, you know, I expect this primary to come down to two people, DeSantis and, and Trump, unless a big new person gets in, and it would have to be. I know people think Glenn Youngkin could be that guy, but I'm here to tell you that nobody else in America knows who Glenn Youngkin is. Right, so yeah. I'd that's be what surprised I if he could recover that. I mean, it's not impossible for it to happen. The whole establishment wing, which is about 30% of the Republican Party, was to paddle all under his direction. They could probably make him competitive. But as of now, it's got to be you know, one of the two. It's going to be either Trump or DeSantis. And, DeSantis may benefit still if, if we see a Trump drop-off as even the reality of these indictments. It's going to be a whole lot different than the, the hypothetical world that we are living in, especially once these criminal proceedings start to heat up and 
we're, we're hearing about the evidence and, and trial arguments and what have you. I, I think it's going to start to feel uh, quite a gravitational pull when you start thinking about putting up somebody who has been convicted or is facing conviction in a general election. And you don't think that um... – so I feel like DeSantis, to me, DeSantis is like the difference. DeSantis and Trump is like the difference between Coca-Cola and the grocery store brand, you know, Big K Cola or whatever. I just feel like, you know, why would you vote for DeSantis if you could vote for Trump? Whereas to exactly. me, yep. Pence seems a little bit, seems different. I mean, he's still, you know, he's still ultra conservative, but. He's, I feel like he's got a little bit more um, sense than the other two. And well, that, Pence is positioned to be like Cain, right? Is it Cain and Abel? Abel, right? Pence is going to, if if it plays out the way that I see it, right? I think the heat for hurting Trump right now has been mostly on DeSantis, right? But I think it's going to shift to Pence, as, especially if he's the star witness in this prosecution. So to me, I, I would see, I mean, at the end of the day, you've got the locked in 15, 20% of the MAGA hardcore, the people we see on the internet all day that are just so nuts and so far down, yeah. you know, mass psychosis that there's no retrieving them. But there's another 30% on top of that, not the 30% that are anti-MAGA, but within the MAGA element, who I think really do value holding power over everything else, right? <laughs> and they start to sober up a little bit. And I think that it will be easier for them to go to DeSantis, especially if you have Trump, um, Pence out there kind of playing the role of the of the Judas. I see. That that probably makes sense. Okay. Well, that's all I have right now. If I have any other questions, I'll come back around. But I know Tim has a whole list. I love Thank your you analogy, very much. though. I love the analogy about in real Coke versus the grocery store brand. I mean, it's very, it's very right on, and, and I think it really does take MAGA to decide that they cannot win with Trump. And if they do make that calculus, then I think they're going to have nowhere to land but to stand here, So. Yeah, I think mm. you're uh, – unfortunately, you may be right. <laughs> yeah. So, but Trump but thank you. Be, be honest with you. Like, any, any nominee that they could put forward would be harder for Joe Biden to beat than Donald Trump. Oh, I like to hear that. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and I was never a person that I don't want Trump to be nominated. I want this criminal nightmare to go away more than I want anything, right? But right. in 2015, like, I was like, oh, God, you know, this is the worst case scenario because uh, they don't understand how the base is going to respond to this stuff, right? Like, I did not want Trump to be the nominee because I figured he'd be the hardest for Clinton to beat. It's the exact opposite in the scenario. Trump is kryptonite amongst the independent pool, and as long as you run the right campaign against him, it would be very hard think, for me to see him winning. I think he's also kryptonite for for a, a percentage of Republicans. Yes, that would either not vote or hold their nose and vote for Biden uh, because yeah. he he. So that's a good point, especially. Especially because Trump is doing such a good job of setting this up to be democracy versus autocracy, right? Like, like that to me, like the stakes of the election, the thematic stakes that Biden's you know team and all the down ballot Democrats have to be doing is telling people, look, this is about freedom versus for, versus tyranny, and it really, really helps when it when Donald Trump is telling people, I'm your retribution. 
and is basing his entire re-election campaign on the idea of, of retribution and punishing people. Yeah. All good points. Go ahead, Tim. Um, thank you, Catherine. Good evening, Dr. Bittacoffer. Thank you for being with us again. Yeah, thanks for having uh, me. This coming Tuesday, of course, the voters of Ohio are going to be tasked with a basically a yes or no vote on something called Issue 1, uh, where a yes vote would mean that 60% of voters' approval would be required to pass any statewide referendum or change the state constitution. Right now, of course, that's at 50 plus 1. And, 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 of course, they're going to make it harder also to get an amendment on the ballot through signature. So, what you know what, we, we all know what this vote is really about. Uh, <laughs> we do. So where, where, where does it stand right now? I mean, I'm, I'm a little worried because they scheduled this thing in August, and we know why they did that. Uh, where does this thing stand, and will yes or no prevail? It looks like no is going to have a, a really big day on Tuesday. <laughs> so that's my assumption. And given what we saw in Kansas, so granted it's a little less direct, right, because that was the actual abortion ban initiative on there, right? Um, uh-huh. you, um, really, I, I, everything we're seeing from the early vote activity, which is hitting 22 levels, which is lower than a presidential turnout but high, much higher than what you would ever expect to see in an August special. And the response that the Wisconsin Supreme Court raised, which was framed completely around the idea of personal freedom, individual liberty, and row, right, um, I think mm-hmm. probably indicates to me that we're going to see a pretty good victory on 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 uh, stopping this power grab out of the Ohio GOP. Mm. It, 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 gets, it gets you to wonder exactly what they're going to try next and where after a while, though, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, um, and that's why we need this natural national repudiation of, of Trumpism. You know, we need we've uh-huh. got what 2024 will be, whether we want it to be or not. It is going to be a make it or break it, uh, and America mm-hmm. will be asked to choose between democracy and freedom, imperfect democracy, a democracy that's never going to be perfect, and, you know, the threat of tyranny and fascism. So we have to – we're going to find out. We're going to have to spike the ball and see where it lands. Mm-hmm. What is the point, by the way, where if, say, Donald Trump prevails that – 2024 might be our last free election for a long time. I think it's pretty clear, right? I mean, Don, Don, what people need to understand is that we didn't just we didn't just wake up in, in 1930s Germany to a Nazi regime that controlled everything, right? It's, it's a systematic right. effort. And, and when you hear the conversations coming out of the think tanks, the big money power players in the Republican Party, what they're talking about is repealing the this. Uh, Civil Service Protection Act, because it used to be cronies and and a patronage system where Mm -hmm. all the civil service posts were filled, and then they passed laws to change that. They want to repeal those protections, and as soon as they do, that's really game over, folks. I mean, once you don't have non-political civil servants doing the bureaucracies, DOJ, FBI, CIA, Education Department, Health Department, so on and so forth, you're really going to start to see a quick erosion. So I think it's wrong for people to expect that on election night or the week after America is going to blow up if Donald Trump wins or any Republican in 2024 wins. 
But I would tell people that most most certainly from what we're seeing out of these Republicans, unless it's somebody like Chris Christie, we're going to see a quick, um, you know, um, revamp of the executive branch. And that's why that presidency, presidency race is important as the down ballots will be. If we can keep them out of the executive branch, we might be able to break the fever that is growing in that party for autocracy and one-party domination. Otherwise, they'll have, mm-hmm. they'll have exactly what they need to start to make those changes. And once that ball starts mm-hmm. to roll, I don't know that we can get it back very easily. Mm-hmm. Let me back up to the Senate for a minute and back to the state of Ohio. Um, we, we know that the Senate map looks fairly tough for Democrats next year. I cannot find a combination, a numerical combination, for the Democrats to keep control of the United States Senate without Sherrod Brown winning in oh, yeah. Ohio. Do you do you believe that as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely believe that. And that's why, you know, I, God, if you're listening, it's me, Margaret. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know, you cannot win in Ohio on Sherrod Brown's biography and all shucksness. You must napalm his Republican opponent and frame them in this broader narrative of threat to freedom. And I I hope that the Brown campaign, despite their their successes over the decades, understands that about the new Ohio. And if they need evidence, I would tell them to look at the failed campaign of Tim Ryan last season, which did exactly Mm -hmm. the opposite strategy, tried to sell Tim Ryan as a product, had Ryan talk about how he's not really that much of a Democrat, talk about bipartisanship, go to all these rural places, and it doesn't work. If you have to brand assault, APOM, the other party's brand, to win a state like Ohio. Mm-hmm. Now I want to and jump one more time. I would say in Montana, too. Yeah, one more time I want to jump back up to the presidential race on the Republican side because you've, you've talked about Ron DeSantis a lot um, on the net. Um, he was viewed as a golden boy, a fresh new face for national Republicans, and he totally dominated politics in Florida, winning by huge amounts and acting anything he wanted to do, uh, basically taking control of the state legislature himself, going to war with the, you know, the woke crowd. But on the national uh, stage, He's just fallen flat. What what happened to him? No, I mean, you have to understand that there's a reason why the Trump campaign needs this narrative about the fantasy and just unlikable and, and love play and whatever, right? Uh, is a, is a uh-huh. very important narrative for them to disqualify their, their alternative, and that is DeSantis. I would not, I would I think it's a, it's very comforting, but I don't I do not engage in in um, underestimating very you know, skilled opponents like Ron DeSantis. I think Ron DeSantis' record, winning in a swing state by 20 points, doing all with doing all that. Think about what he did. It'd be the equivalent in Georgia of taking and um, kneecapping um, Delta out of Atlanta. Okay, what he did uh-huh. is he went after the most sacred cow in the Florida pasture, and he stabbed it right through the heart. <laughs> like going mm-hmm. after Disney. Like if you were, you know, 10 years ago, you're like, okay. A Florida governor goes after Disney. Are they politically, like, you know, uh, viable for re-election or running for president? And the answer would have been hell no, okay? Like, it's absolutely a 
astounding that he was able to do those things. And that's why I always point to him and others as an example. Like, obviously, moderation, swing voters are not responding to moderation and temperament and policy. Or they wouldn't be sending people like Ron DeSantis in with big margins. The way we communicate with voters has to meet them where they are. They don't know much about anything, and it's about our brand versus their brand. We should be doing their brand down, our brand up, and it really does involve uh, an aggressive negative campaigning about DeSantis and the threats that he poses to individual liberty. Well, I thank you for that, Doctor. And with that, I am going to send it back over to David. David? Yes. Just real quickly, I know that, you know, Tim mentioned Ohio specifically, um, but and it's, the map for hold the Senate's pretty much, um, you know, hold every seat, and, have, and we'll look for an improvement in Arizona. But is there a place where Democrats could upset Republicans, or is what's the best opportunity you see? Yeah, Florida. I mean, if you know, I <laughs> I I would love to run the opposition campaign against Rick Scott. Rick, Rick Scott is incredibly vulnerable. Why? He's on record coming after Social Security and Medicare. Very, very radical, and I think it is super suitable to a wedge campaign that defines um, Rick Scott as the as the executioner of of the social safety net programs. But in places like the villages, which is a really core Republican stronghold, that's the kind of place I think you could really do a lot of damage on Social Security and Medicare messaging. So just to clarify, you see Rick Scott as more vulnerable than Tim's, uh, than uh, Ted Cruz? Oh, potentially, yes. I, I mean, I don't know that Ted Cruz is vulnerable. I don't know that the, I don't know that the money and the infrastructure will be there. If I had to choose between sending a dollar to, against Rick Scott, or um, against Cruz and be Rick Scott, but here's the thing: when I say that he's vulnerable, he's vulnerable under one specific strategy. If they run the same stuff that they did last cycle with Val Dennings, and it's like, look, she's a sheriff and she rides a motorcycle and vote for her, then no, he's not vulnerable. If you come in there and napalm Florida with Rick Scott's going to make you work till you die and let you die sick in the streets, I think that we have a real chance. Well, I tell you what, I like provocative guests with interesting things to say, and you have been exactly that and closed <laughs> with something very thought-provoking. Now, we're going to have to think about because I guess conventional wisdom was Colin Allred and um, Ted Cruz, so you've challenged that, and, hey, that's okay. I mean, it's good to have different ideas. Um, well, last thing. Um, we know that you have a book coming out in early 2024, and we're going to have you back on to talk about the book when it does come out. But I think you're taking pre-orders, or, or if you just want to build a little buzz for that book, and then anything else you want to promote, now's your chance. Yeah, I got the opportunity to write, my, take everything out of my brain and put it into written format. So that's going to be my new book, which is, as you just um, suggested, available for pre-order on Amazon now. It's called Hit Them Where It Hurts. How to Save Democracy by Being Republicans at Their Own Game. And, you know, the transition there, talking about what we need to do against Rick Scott, that really is what this book is about. It, it, it starts off trying to support the knowledge I have as a trained political scientist who did a dissertation on American political behavior to get people to understand, you know, our comms, 
are not meeting the American electorate where it is, which is tuned in, tuned off, and dropped out. Right? <laughs> so we need we need to, to understand the reality of, of our fellow man, you know, our fellow Americans who are plenty smart but civically illiterate. It's, you know, smart is not the same thing as civic literacy. And then we need to develop strategy and messaging that that works within that that play that we have, and not the army we'd like to have. So I'm really excited about the book, and it's, I hope to be reading the Audible version myself. So you can pre-order either on Amazon right now. Oh, great to hear it's coming out in audio. I'll plan on, you know, getting that so I can listen to it before you have you on the show in 2024 to talk about that, you know, hit them where it hurts in detail. But we want to thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Thanks so much for having me. It was nice to speak with you all. Thank you thank very you, much. Thank you, Doctor. Okay. Bye-bye. Good night. Bye. That was Dr. Rachel Bittekoffer, um, expert. She writes the cycle on Substack, so read that in the interim. She's on TV everywhere. Um, you know, maybe not The Blaze, maybe not uh, uh, Newsmax, but, but all the good places, all the, all the quality news sources. So, um, And then her book, when that comes out, we'll definitely have her back on, one of our favorite guests. Um before I get into what we're going to talk about in Tennessee, it's so interesting and refreshing when someone says something provocative and just different than conventional wisdom. Um, were you all kind of surprised by that answer about Florida? I, 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 was, I, I was a little surprised by that, uh, but I, I have learned not to discount also things that she says. She has... Uh, She's been predicting things when no one did, like in 2018, when she said, "You know what? The Democrats are going to do very well in these in in these midterms." When people people said that they were not going to do that well, and again, she said uh, in 2022 there wasn't going to be a red wave. What she was right about that too. Uh, so I, I don't discount her, uh, but uh, that that is interesting, isn't it? What what she said about Florida? It yes, is. I, uh, Catherine. Go ahead. Yeah, I think uh, she, to me, I just feel like she has her finger on the pulse, and she's um, willing to strike against popular wisdom, and I think that's a really important um, uh, characteristic for a political, uh, I don't like the word pundit. Uh, so I think that's really important to, to be able to uh, go against, politi- you know, you know, popular opinion. Yeah. So I, I always appreciate what she has to say. Well, I think a lot of times when you have an opinion, if you can show your work, if you can tell why, it really holds value. That's exactly what she did, talking about Social Security and how it's going to change over some voters there in the villages and other places. Um, And so I I think it's an interesting discussion. Now, every time we talk about Florida and Texas, I I think we're going to have to keep coming back to that conversation. On the 27th of August, Sonia Van Meter of Texas is going to come on. She's probably going to tell us why Colmer Allred is an outstanding candidate, which he is. And Ted Cruz is super unlikable, which he is. But now we've got to, you know, kind of put that um, question to every guest that from Texas and then from Florida as well. Um, well, let's get back into Tennessee. And, Tim, 
Um, you were talking about the two representatives that got put out and are now one reelection. And then, of course, there's yeah. Gloria Johnson who made news. So pick up where you left off. Yeah, well, you know, we, let's segue over to her. Um, she is apparently very close to deciding uh, to probably challenge Marsha Blackburn. Uh, to put it mildly, right. you know, that, that that that's an uphill climb. I, I, I mean, uh, first of all, she'd have to face uh, uh, Makita uh, Bradshaw. Uh, now, for those of you that don't recall her, she was the 2020 nominee to go after Bill Haggerty, <laughs> and she lost by 27 points. But still, uh, Representative Johnson's not going to have a free and clear lane to get the Democratic nomination. And then secondly, well, look, I mean, we know what the lay of the land is in Tennessee right now. It has been as tough the sledding there for Democrats as basically any state in the South. Maybe maybe Tennessee is even the worst state right now uh, for Democrats to be running for anything in. Republicans have super majorities in the legislature. They have drawn the districts uh, with the skill of a surgeon. Uh, they, they've even... Uh, on the congressional level, taking over the city of Nashville by dividing it into four slices. And statewide, uh, you know, Marsha Blackburn uh, has not really had to break a sweat, e- even against Phil Bredesen, uh, who, who everybody thought was very popular governor. She beat him by double digits. This is going to be tough for her. Very tough. Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you, some people might say that, you know, um, Marsha Blackburn's dumb as a rock. I would never disparage the rock community like that. Um, (laughs) And frankly, all she needs to do is know how to put a capital R beside her name. You're right about Phil Bredesen. That was a governor who, as the country and the state of Tennessee was trending Republican, still won re-election winning every county in the state of Tennessee. Mm -hmm. But yet he couldn't come with a double digits of her. Now, will this coming election, will Tennessee, because of some of the actions, will it be a little more Democratic than it was back when Phil Bredesen got defeated by Marsha Blackburn? You know, very possible. But it may not be anywhere near enough to matter for Gloria Johnson because Gloria Johnson's just not going to have the record that Phil Bredesen did as governor because he was even still considered a very, very popular governor. Uh, when he left office. And so if she announces, as that primary evolves, you know, we'll talk about it. But once again, I don't think she's going to crack Florida. She's not going to crack Texas and make Tennessee a more winnable U.S. Senate seat than those two states, for starters. And then we haven't even gone into the entire map. Let's go ahead and talk about one final issue. And Catherine, you brought it up to Dr. Bittekoffer. <laughs> And that was um, kind of the fallout that uh, Mike Pence and Donald Trump have had this past week. Now, we know they've already had a falling out, but it became much more public. Uh, Donald Trump was very vociferous on his truth social about his feelings for Mike Pence. But Mike Pence has kind of alluded to the fact that he might testify 
in one of these um, hearings where Donald Trump has been indicted against him. So it has not reached this level till now. Um, Catherine, what do you make of this, and how do you think this might impact the presidential race? Well, I think, you know, we all have to wait and see what happens with these indictments and trials and, you know, how it all um, comes out. But I think it could bode well for Mike Pence with, uh, I think, I think uh, Dr. Bettikoffer nailed it by saying that he he could draw some, well, I guess I should say, I think he could draw some MAGA voters, not the super MAGA voters, but the the ones in the middle, because he is conservative and he was, he is um a little bit in that he's he's a Christian and I think all that helps him in that in that crowd. But also I think he can draw some moderate Republicans who are, you know, uh who find Trump distasteful. I think a lot depends on what happens with DeSantis. If he, you know, continues to slide down the polls, then I think Pence is in a better position. But I think a lot depends on the on the court. Tim, first off, what do you make of all this, and then how does it impact, in particular, the campaigns of Donald Trump and uh, Mike Pence moving forward? Well, I, I, I think this has two obvious explanations why Pence suddenly had a, dare I say, come-to-Jesus moment. Uh, a, he looked at the polls. He's running on average two percent in the polls yeah. nationally. So so he had to shake up the race or, or try to. He he needs to set himself up somehow as the alternative to Trump. So maybe this was an attempt to uh jump away from the pack. And and B he's tried to walk a fine line for months. And, and and I imagine in light of all these indictments that maybe he simply could not find a way to do that any longer. It, it, it would it would be hard to be running against Donald Trump while at the same time defending Donald Trump uh, and thereby denying yourself the best issue to run against Donald Trump on. And that, and that's why he come up with things like this gaggle of crackpot lawyer and, and and stuff like that. Of course, now Trump's attacking him. He said he's gone to the dark side, called him delusional. I noticed up there in New Hampshire he, he drew about a dozen hecklers when he was getting out to go in and an event, so that that goes with it too. So uh, I don't think it's going to do him any good, David. Really, or or anybody else that tries anything else against Trump. Do you? I'm I'm going to give you the take. It's funny that you know Trump said he went to the dark side because y'all know the comment I sent to y'all. Um, and I'm going to give yeah. a little bit of wrestling speak here. You know, ten years ago, who could? We would have said, what could turn Mike Pence babyface? That's the good guy in wrestling <laughs> parlance. And, and apparently the ultimate heel, Donald Trump, uh, has done that. Now, I'll tell you this, talking about the dark side, if you ask me what could turn Donald Trump 
baby face. I don't want to live on a planet with the person that could do that. Because <laughs> um, that's just scary to think about. But as far as the political side of this, I, I'll go ahead and tell you, I don't think it's going to matter because the number of anti-Trump voters in the Republican you know, electorate that are still left, because a bunch of those folks left, they're not even the Republican Party anymore. They might become independents that could come back to the flock one day in a general on certain races, but they're not going to be big activists in the um, primary vote. That's going to split between Christie, um, Will Hurd, maybe a few others, and Mike Pence. So he's going to stay in single digits. The biggest development for Mike Pence and what happened this past week is tomorrow morning when Mike Pence turns on the lights and looks at himself in the mirror, he can look at himself in the mirror. He grew a bit of a backbone, and he can be a little more proud of himself as a person for standing up to the bully. This is probably the best development for Melania Trump's Be Best anti-bullying initiative since the whole thing got started. Um, If we find out she was involved in getting Mike Pence to do this, man, it really will be a win for her. But I just don't (laughs) see it as a big political deal. Um, We'll see how the polls move. Well, you know where And he can make the debate stage now. You know where it would be a a big deal? If he were called to testify in one of those trials, one of those criminal trials, that that would be damning to Trump. he, he could contradict what Trump's lawyers are saying that that he did. He because if there's one guy that knows just about all of it, well, beside Trump, of course, it's Mike Pence, right? Yeah. He he could yeah. he could go to court and absolutely destroy. Trump. I mean, what Trump say to him? You're too honest. Oh my God! How would you like to be accused of that, David? You're too honest, buddy. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Definitely so. Uh, very mafioso. Well, we're excited about next week's show. We're going to have on the show for I believe the second time, uh, Mark C. Johnson. He's a political. A strategist from the past, but now he's an author, and he's got a new book about about um, Senator Dirksen from Illinois and Senator Mansfield from, I want to say, Montana. Um, and, and these seem like, oh, these are names from the past. One of them has one of the Senate buildings named after him. And another one, if you're thinking, well, that guy served, you know, 40 years ago, how does he matter? There's a story he's going to tell us about a freshman senator from – uh, Delaware and what Mike Mansfield did around that holiday season that impacts our politics today and very likely for the next five years. Um, so I think all this is very relevant. So we're going to talk to Marcy Johnson next week about that book. And thanks again to Dr. Bittekoffer for coming on and just doing a great job throughout the interview, but just ending it with a bang. And so till next week, it's been the Cudsy Good night, Ryan. y'all. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity?